In a moment, I'm going to pray again, being mindful of the people down in Florida and the issues they're facing and the loss they're facing and how they're wrestling through as a society what to do with these deep times of hurt. And it becomes a question for us to think about is how does a church respond to tragedies that occur, experiences that are tough, that we as people of the church, the kingdom of God, with our deep concern for the kingdoms of this world, we find ourselves also engaging and entering in to the discussion in ways that we can be helpful. There's four things I think we can do as a church when tragedies and difficulties occur, as I like to say, in our other kingdom, the kingdoms of this world. First of all, prayer. And prayer is not trite. You know, the prayers of, for people activates the hearts of God and the Spirit of God to be at work in the hearts of people and ultimately moving people towards Christ who is the one who offers ultimate peace. And so we pray. We also have the opportunity when we have tragedies that require the opportunity, require and the opportunity for us to share financial resources, hurricanes and other events. We provide avenues through Covenant World Relief, our part of our denomination that's so helpful to us because our hearts are moved to say, I want to be part of helping people in need. We also need to have times of discussion, and we need to discuss issues as they relate to the church and culture in the world. And we want to do that in ways that's helpful. We have a class coming up on resolutions, some of the resolutions of the covenant that address some of these underlying systemic issues within society. And uh, we have wonderful opportunity to be able to together, and if we can't discuss these things together, how can we possibly be a light to the world? Uh, we also have Intersect class that Colleen teaches, which also takes the message of Christ into community. And we also can live it out. There might be something we might do corporately in the church together with something that arises in our culture. But most importantly, we have to live it out as individual people. Moved by God, moved by um, the compassion, the needs people have, and we as individual people have to take Christ into our world and think about these issues and respond to these issues, these systemic issues that are within our culture. So these are ways that the church can be engaged in the world and society. But let's pray now. Father, as we think about the folks in Florida and, Father, the, the overwhelming loss and grief they're experiencing, as we think about those individuals, Father, who lost a loved one, lost a child, Father, may somehow by your spirit, may you give them this incredible comfort that only comes from you, Father. And as we pray, Father, and as others pray, we pray their hearts will be touched. Father, as they wrestle with the issues of what to do in light of these tragedies, Father, give us wisdom. We need wisdom. We need encouragement as we face these challenges in life. Which, Father, always brings us back to you. Always brings us back to our deep need for you. And Father, help us. Help us to be engaged. Help us to respond when our hearts are moved. But this morning, Father, I encourage us to pray. Father, quiet our hearts in a moment as we've already moved this, this message and this time together towards your abundant grace and your acceptance. Father, may we find that rich and deep in our lives. Amen. How we see ourselves dramatically changes how we see the world, how we interact with others, how we take on life. If we see ourselves as being downtrodden, losing, not much worth, we try new things with confidence or take on life's challenges 
We won't with gusto. We learn the self-view at a very, very early age. How we are taught to see ourselves by those who raise us is incredibly important. One of the great books in a movie is if you've seen it, The Help. If you saw the movie or read the book, you remember the scene where the maid, Adeline, has her little child and often does this little child in her lap and says this. You is kind, you is smart, you is important. You is smart, you is kind, you is important. <laughs> That's a great scene, and you see that scene often throughout the movie, and particularly the painful scene where she is dismissed, the servant of this family, and, and she last time recites these words, you is smart, you is kind, you is important. And I guess, you know, there's words that we need to hear often. As a people of faith, as we think about life, we need to repeat these to each other as we live life. You is loved by God, he was accepted by God. He was a child of God. Loved by God, accepted by God, a child by God. We need to be that repeat in our lives. We need to repeat that to each other often because we so quickly, so quickly forget. We experienced the death of Billy Graham. It's a lot of very nostalgic for me. For all of us, people particularly my age, as we think of the impact that Billy Graham has had over time, He's been kind of sidelined with old age for quite some time now, but uh, we think of the impact he made through the Crusades and how he called people to, to faith in Christ. And in one of the revivals that we have experienced in our country, much of it has contributed to him. And so we've lost somebody of very significance, I think, both in culture and in the church. But I think it's important, as Ecclesiastes 7.10 says, do not say, why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions. And there's some truth to it. First of all, we don't know necessarily. It's kind of dicey. Those were the better days versus now. And furthermore, all we can do is learn from the experience of the past. We can't live there. Because we're called to live out the life of Christ now, today, in what we have to face in our everyday life experiences. Not wise to ask a question. Why were the old days better than these what I want to focus on is the central issue of the gospel. What I'm going to say to most of you is a review. But sometimes concepts and ideas that are so familiar to us, sometimes we lose the significance of them because they're so common to us. And that's why we have to keep repeating over and over and over again with fresh eyes what Christ has done for us. His love and his grace. That was so apparent in Billy Graham's preaching was the love and grace of God. But he also talked about the judgment. Love and grace of God, but the judgment. Now it's a question as what kind of uh, impact he made on civil rights, but he did want to integrate his crusades and he would not allow his, some of his crusades to go on with segregation and separation. He also had church denominations, anybody who claimed Christ, he was saying we need to work together for the common cause of Christ. And for us as people today, we need a balance between proclaiming the gospel which transfers us from darkness into light and social implications unfolding the gospel in people's lives. 
there's that, that kind of balance there. Proclaiming without love is a problem. Love without proclaiming the gospel leaves people short because the issue is of internal significance and implications. The gospel of Christ. Jesus' journey to the cross. Because he journeyed to the cross, we are accepted by the living God. We take that kind of tritely. Well, sure, I'm accepted by God through Christ, but stop and think about that. The eternal God who created this world, the eternal God who calls us so, desires us to be in a relationship with him, we can be accepted by the God of the universe because of the great, great sacrifice of the living Christ. So you might want to turn to the book of Romans with me for a moment. You might want to go to chapter 1 and follow the flow. I'm going to move quite quickly through the flow. Or you might want to go to chapters 5 and then chapter 8 there because we're going to land just for a bit there this morning. But the book of Romans is familiar to many of us and sometimes as you read through we say there's a lot of complexities in that book. But it's the greatest treatise of any book in the Bible on God's plan for humanity. Some people call it the Magna Carta of the Christian faith. And it's a magnificent book. It's what very interesting you see in this book is there's two warring groups. You have the Jews and the Gentiles who had a hostility towards each other culturally. Also, it became boiling often in the life of the church. And so these two warring groups, and this was very apparent in the place that Paul was writing to Rome. And this is one of the most masterful books I've ever seen on him taking issues for the Gentiles and issues of the Jews and trying to challenge them and encourage them to keep, keep listening to what he has to say, to keep moving them together. It's in moving them together in chapter 12 where he calls them as with their feet on the ground, both Jew and Gentile, to give their lives to Christ. It's the best example I've ever seen of an of a example of how we take two warring groups and how we can take them and move them together to find a sense of unity and purpose. It's masterfully done by the Apostle Paul. The message of Romans flows from what we covered last week. Human beings made in the image of God. We have infinite value in creation, the very creation itself. And we have this wonderful hope, every human being for the recreation in Christ where we become whole. But after that creation, we remember the fall of humanity as Adam and Eve lacked trust because it starts with a lack of trust and led to disobedience. And the fall of humanity in space and time forms the basis for our need for Christ. The whole basis of the gospel has to be predicated on the fact that human beings are fallen, alienated from God. What are we being rescued from if there is no alienation or breach in the relationship with God? The collected community, the human race, is alienated from God. In a sense, we corporately fell with Adam and Eve. The human race finds itself separated from the living God. But each individual, by our own actions, reinforce our fallenness and our need for a Savior who died for us. Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul thunders with the words, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God. Folks, The gospel is the power of God to salvation to anyone who believes. If there's anything in human existence that we ought not to be ashamed of, it's the gospel of Christ. Because it reconnects warring people with God together. The message of salvation for the righteous, he says, will live by their faith, hearkening back to the book of Habakkuk. 
He also says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of human beings who suppress the truth in their wickedness. And so Paul takes issue, rightfully so, with the behavior of human beings that's destructive within society and how it impacts and affects people, wickedness. But he says this, all human beings, that which is known about God is evident to them for God has made it evident through creation. He describes the creation of the world, his divine attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature has been clearly seen, therefore without excuse, if we refuse to worship the living God. There seems to be this awareness made in the image of God, the vestiges of the image of God, that there's an inner conscience that says, as we look around, we see this incredible creation, and somehow that moves us towards God. He gives us genuine freedom, however, where we can be moved by what we observe towards God, faith to faith, or we move away from God. And we move away from God, he describes in chapter one the stair steps of our behavior that moves away from God and becomes more and more destructive. And the reality is God respects human choice and gives us over with each step of rejection of God. He then feels the comparative need to spend two chapters two chapters to talk about the fact that human beings are fallen. It wouldn't be much to observe what was going on at this time to see that human beings are fallen. But he needs to have all human beings, every human being to understand that they are fallen. He said there's, there's, with the Gentiles, there's a different basis of condemnation than the Jews because they're not familiar with the law. But by they making moral judgments of others, you make a judgment of a person, then you end up doing it the same. You have self-condemned yourself. But there's instinctively, he says, in, in the very hearts of people, the image of God, a vestige of recognizing lawful behavior or unlawful behavior. And so he says, as Gentiles, we see that we can't somehow live up to God's standard. Of course, to the Jewish people, the rejection of the law, they saw their absolute inability to be able to keep what was given to them by a gracious God. But in chapter three, he makes these these statements that he draws from all over the Old Testament in chapter three, verses 10. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All turn away. Altogether, we have become worthless. There is no one who is good, not even one. And the list goes on and on and on. Because the grace of Christ, the powerful message of God's grace, has no bearing or place when one doesn't realize their deep need for God. When I was a child, the, the first passage you, you, you would recite and memorize in almost any Bible program of memorization is this. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Remember as a wee little boy reciting that verse to my aunt as I had to go over and recite verses every week. I can imagine my little voice at that time because I probably started when we were five, six years old memorizing scripture in my family. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We do not meet God's standards, all human beings. All behavioral attempts fall short. The book of the message on this passage says, since we have uh, compiled this long and sorry record as sinners, it proves that we are utterly incapable of living the glorious life God wills for us. 
And folks, the hardest step for people in this whole process of coming back to, to God for many people is for them to realize that they're sinful. To the point where they realize that there's nothing they can do, all their religious behavior, however good it may be, or how their wonderful moral life is totally incapable to, get, to be the basis by which they reconnect with God. Utterly spiritually bankrupt we are as people yet with dignity. But the beautiful hint, the beautiful hint in the book as this book unfolds to us is God has done something that we cannot do ourselves. We are justified, made right, declared part of the family as a gift, a gift of God's grace through God's saving act, which is in Jesus Christ at the cross. And as he, this book unfolds, you see the Apostle Paul keep coming back to this. We are made right, entered into the family of God by a gift of God's incredible grace. It goes on in the book of Romans to lift up from the Old Testament two people of great faith, Abraham and David, those great people of the Old Testament, Abraham, the father of the nation, David, the father of the, the, David, the, father of the nation, as well as the Davidic kingship. And so because of what God has done for us, we cannot do ourselves. We respond in genuine faith like Abraham and like David. Saved from the wrath of God, this judgment and condemnation for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life, folks. Eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's an unbelievable song that we sing, and the culture sings this song. We as Christians sing this song because we so profoundly believe the words are true. And I believe the culture, as it sings this song, would only wish that these words are true. So let's sing a familiar song, and Jenny with wonderful pitch. We'll sing a cappella, Amazing Grace. Let's sing two verses of this together. And the impact of this words, just let them seep into our hearts. <laughs> Is that beautiful? It's kind of a little precursor as Revelation describes all the people who are gathered around the throne of the living God and singing praises to him. That's just a little foretaste of what's coming. Because we're accepted by God through Christ, everything in Christian life flows from this wonderful principle of acceptance in the cross. When I was growing up and as a Christian in my life, two phrases were the most important ones to me. As sometimes when I was walking away from God or when I was just wrestling with the implications of faith was we have peace with God and also that I am pardoned by God. I have no condemnation in him. I can't tell you how many times I've referred back to those passages in my life when I didn't feel like I had peace with God. I did not have, feel like I had pardoned by God. And I rehearse the powerful message of the gospel again in my life. We have peace with God. We've been justified by faith. Peace that matters. The great Billy Graham wrote a book, Peace with God, and he said, the world doesn't give peace, folks, for it doesn't have any peace to give. It fights for peace. It negotiates for peace. It maneuvers for peace. But there is no ultimate peace in the world. But Jesus gives peace to those who put their trust in him. Peace with the most important being in our lives. And sometimes that seems trite. Give your life to Christ and you'll have peace. And it will impact the world. But it's true. The Bible gives the starting point and the foundational truths that we take with us as we impact the world, as we think about the issues of the world. Peace with God first moves towards peace with others. We, are, we experience peace. Do you experience peace today? 
What is stopping you? What is stopping me from experiencing and recognizing because of what Christ has done for us? We have peace. We also are pardoned by God. The principle of forgiveness in pardons. You remember the story of Matthew Shepard, the young gay man who was murdered in Wyoming. The family rejoiced over the guilty verdict that was handed down to the murderers. The judge told the packed courtroom that the jury's verdict showed true courage and sent a message that violence is not the solution to differing views on sexual orientation. The courtroom observers were not prepared for what Dennis and Judy Shepard did next. After waiting 13 months for guilty verdicts for their son's killer, Matthew Shepard's parents asked the judge to spare the lives of these two by giving them life sentences rather than the death penalty. The one who prosecuted the case said the shepherds could look into the eyes of the man who killed their son and extended to them mercy. You know, there's some satisfaction that comes when justice is served. But my contention is that the real satisfaction is never fully achieved unless there's a measure of forgiveness that is experienced. Presidents have privilege of extending pardons to people convicted of crimes. They pardon them. They release from the consequences and the effects of a conviction. They pardon, we know, some of the most unscrupulous characters. But we need to realize that we are all spiritually unscrupulous characters before God, and he pardons us through Christ, whose willingness is to die for us. Again, we find ourselves always at the foot of the cross. We have been pardoned by God. And once we understand that we have peace with God, once we understand that we have pardoned with God, we can then truly live for God. Chapter 6 through 8 in the book of Romans is a marvelous treating of sanctification, what it means to be set apart, to be holy, for the special work and the special purpose that God has given to us and how we can unpack what it looks like with peace and pardoned as it plays out in our lives. But it allows us to make sense of that height of the book in chapter 12 where I've so often referred to, based upon the mercy of God, we present ourselves to God And by doing that, we come to understand his will and the special work and the grace and the purpose that he has for us. It all flows from grace. And the examples in this great chapter 12 moves us to humility to serve one another in community, to love others not with hypocrisy but with gentleness. Because of peace, of God's peace, we can associate with the lowly. We can provide care for the enemy. We can never pay back evil for evil and revenge. We live at peace with one another, just to name a few. Today, I hope you leave with a deep sense. Folks, a deep sense that you are accepted by God. Through Jesus Christ, who journeyed to the cross, you have peace, and you have been pardoned by God. And Billy Graham says, don't let your burdens and your hardships of this life distract you or discourage you. But keep your eyes firmly on what God has promised at the end of the journey, which is heaven itself. Meantime, folks, keep reciting. We're loved by God. You're accepted by God. You are a child of God. Amen.